Hello, Podmates. Howie Severino here with a special guest, Dr. Mohan Beer Soni, an Indian-born expert on artificial intelligence applications in business and Associate Dean for Digital Innovation at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Professor Sonny is a globally recognized scholar, teacher, consultant, and speaker on business innovation, digital marketing, and product strategy. He is currently in Evanston, Illinois, but will be coming soon to the Philippines to give a lecture on artificial intelligence. Good morning there, Professor Sonny. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Professor, how do you define artificial intelligence in its simplest form? In the simplest form, artificial intelligence is any software program that has the ability to uh, to reason and to mimic some form of human decision making. Right, so it has the ability to take input, learn, adapt, and to provide an output. So it's really kind of uh, mimicking cognitive work and cognitive decision making. It was created in 1958, so uh, AI has been around a very long time. It is, you know, but, uh, and in fact, uh, it has gone through what we call the AI winter, where everybody sort of said, this is never going to, you know, uh, come out to anything, uh, because the early AI systems, and in fact, when I was in engineering school in the 1980s, we had AI, but those those days, they were part expert systems. So expert systems, we basically were rule-based expert systems, where you programmed a set of rules into a system, and then it would make recommendations based on the rules engine. The problem is that that system was only as smart as the rules that you put in. And every time you ask the same question, you get the same answer. But what changed then was the evolution was we had machine learning. Uh, and this started, you know, in the, uh, about 20 years ago. So in machine learning, the idea was now that the algorithms could learn based on exposure to more data. So that's why it's called machine learning. The machine learns. Uh, and with, and you can do this without explicit programming, as opposed to the earlier generation where you have to explicitly program the rules. Now the machines found patterns in the data. So that was machine learning. Then that evolved into what we call deep learning. And deep learning is about 10 years old from 2013 onwards. And deep learning was the idea that you started to actually look even more closely at mimicking cognitive decisions that humans make because our brain is organized as a neural network. So it's a network of neurons. And those, that, that network is hierarchical. So there's sort of layers. So that neural network became the foundation for what we call deep learning. And those techniques, those algorithms, uh, ultimately it's matrices. It's matrices, it's rows and columns. But those uh, deep learning models are really good at pattern recognition problems of three kinds. You know, recognizing speech, the nature of speech, speech recognition, uh, you know, and recognizing text, natural language understanding, and third is machine vision, which is images. So speech data, images data, and text data uh, were the three forms uh, of, of problems. And that was what the excitement was until last year, and still is, right? If you look at, for instance, medical diagnosis of C CT scans, or if you look at driverless cars, looking at pedestrians, that's all deep learning uh, algorithms, uh, Google photos, uh, and so on. Uh, what is new since last year, uh, literally with the announcement of the API about more than a year ago, but now uh, with the announced creation of ChatGPT, which was really, by the way, ChatGPT is not new. What is new is, is the interface that they put on, OpenAI put on it. What is underlying it is what we call a large language model or LLM. ChatGPT just made it very easy to interact, but anybody could interact with it. 
Earlier, they had released the API, which means programmers could interact with it, but now end users could interact with it. So what is new about this technology is it is generative AI. What is generative means it actually just, see, traditional, if you look at deep learning, it generates a prediction, right? It makes a prediction. Is this X-ray diseased uh, eye or is it a bad, uh, is it a good eye? Is this uh, email fraud or, or spam or is it not? But in generative AI, it generates new content. Right? It generates, it's generating new images, generating new text, generating new code, generating new videos. So the idea of generative means that you are actually creating new, previously unseen data based on a training data set of similar data. So that's what's new and what's getting people excited. But it's important to understand that machine learning, deep learning, those haven't gone away. They're still, you know, 90% of the applications are there, but generative AI adds a new layer of uh, use cases and functionality uh, that 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 is getting a lot of people excited right now. Is it correct to assume that AI is only learning from what is on the internet already? So if the internet has a lot of trash, how will this affect AI? Yeah, I think that that is, that is true. This uh, is, you know, all of AI models are subject to the garbage in, garbage out, you know, uh, problem. And another very important thing is that AI can only make predictions based on the past. Mm -hmm. It can never do core start creativity, right? I like to say that no deep learning algorithm could have come up with cubism with Picasso, you know, but it can now take Picasso's style and apply it and create a new a new painting, right? Similarly, no AI algorithm would have come up with the theory of relativity because that is just a discontinuity. There was nothing people had ever thought about before. So there are limitations. But as far as like the whole internet is concerned, well, you know, the internet is actually very vast. Probably. I mean, today, what will we say? So what is ChatGPT trained on? ChatGPT is trained on, you know, on, on, on a vast body of literature, right? From, from, from classics to history, to science, to medicine, to engineering, to business. Uh, and essentially anything that has been put on online digitally. And by the way, now all libraries are online, right? Google has digitized a lot of libraries. So pretty much, you know, everything that mankind has written, even in the ancient times is now available digitally. So I think it's unfair to say that the internet is full of trash. I think the internet is actually everything that mankind has ever written. So it actually becomes a very, you know, rich learning foundation for these language learning models like ChatGPT or GPT-4, which is what underlies ChatGPT. So, uh, but subject to that, it is still based on the past. It is still subject to training cutoffs, which for GPT-3.5 is September 2021. And it is subject to the biases, not only of what data is exposed to, but there's another bias that's important to understand that initially you do need a human in the loop to train because the, the output of the language learning models is evaluated by human coders. And there were, what I think, 40 coders who were involved in, human coders who were involved in the creation of, uh, of ChatGPT. So those judgments may be biased. Those judgments may be limited by, you know, by the human being. So... Uh, so those are the the, the constraints, uh, and and also once the language learning models are launched, they get trained based on how people interact with them. So those interactions are biased. That can also lead to a bias in trade. So 
all these are caveats because there is a very nice metaphor that people talk about. Language learning models and generative AI models are, there's a term for it, stochastic parrots. So they are basically probabilistic parrots. They are parrots who will repeat back to you what they have learned and they'll do it probabilistically. But you have to understand that the parrot inherently doesn't have intelligence, doesn't have free. So, you know, these models may look like they're reasoning, but they're not actually reasoning. They're just doing, you know, prediction of words based on what words have occurred in, in history. But with that said, you know, the ability that they have and, and the realism and the the power is is enormous. I mean, it's it was uh, I've been in the area of technology and innovation and you know for and the internet for more than thirty years, and I have to say I have never been more amazed or excited by not only the scale or scope of the possibilities, but also the speed mm. with which this change is happening. That speed is absolutely mind-boggling. But wouldn't you say that the speed of the development of AI is also dangerous? It is dangerous. The technology advances at a very rapid pace. Human ability to appreciate its pros and cons and to usefully apply it doesn't advance as quickly. Organizations and their ability to leverage technology advances even more slowly because there are people, more bureaucracy involved. And regulation also lags because the it takes a while for regulators to wrap their heads and arms around what is going on. So, uh, so yes, I think that the genie is out of the bottle and things are moving very, very rapidly and we can't slow things down. Uh, there are people, including Elon Musk, that are calling alarms saying, shut this down, slow it down. It's not going to slow down. It just needs to be managed you know, better and managed more intelligently. And uh, that's a collective responsibility of the big tech companies like Microsoft and OpenAI and Google and Amazon, but also of the governments and, and regulators and, uh, and corporations. So, uh, so we will have to approach AI in a responsible and ethical manner in a, in a, in a way that is inclusive, in a way that's unbiased. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think the, the, the most powerful analogy I can offer here is that this is the new nuclear energy. You, you know, you, we've learned how to split the atom. You can either create nuclear energy out of it, or you can blow yourself up spectacularly. It's your choice, right? So technology is just a tool. But, you know, I like to say, Rafi, that a fool with a tool is still a fool. But perhaps a more dangerous one. For emerging economies like the Philippines, how do we leverage AI? Yeah, so I think that it's a AI for emerging economies like the Philippines is a double-edged sword, right? And that on, on, on the one hand, creates uh, enormous new opportunities for the people who have the right skills and the talents, uh, because there will be lots of new jobs in creative in data analytics and in, in engineering and in, uh, in, in the use cases that emerge out of this, whether it's in manufacturing or healthcare and so on. But on the other hand, a lot of the what I'd call mundane cognitive work, low-level cognitive work, you know, whether it is so. For example, if you look at the Philippines, uh, let me take just two businesses that Philippines in services have been has, has been strong in. You know, let's look at call center operations because of the excellent English, and the other is nursing. Uh, you know, I was on the board of EXL Service and. We recruited over a thousand nurses in 
who were trained on U.S. RN and LPN certification, but operated out of the uh, Philippines. So if you look at nurses, for instance, you know, so many nurses who come from the Philippines are working as nannies and, 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 and you know, doing mundane jobs in the U.S. because they don't have certifications. What now we can do is to actually train them to, to stay in the Philippines and to not have brain drain, but be with their families. So if you look at nursing and AI, Nursing actually really helps AI because it, it becomes the co-pilot. So one of the things that we had done at EXL was that we the nurses in the Philippines, in Cebu and in, in, in Manila and other places, were actually handling calls as patients called in. Uh, they were doing the diagnosis. They were doing the follow-up. So that can be informed by AI. So I've seen a very interesting demonstration that Microsoft has of the, the Dynamics co-pilot for customer service. So where you've got a chat window that's open with a customer, with a with a customer, and simultaneously the algorithm is saying, mm, "I think this is the problem. I think this is what you might want to tell them." So it's generating the input. So that idea of human beings and machines working together makes the nurse that much more productive, makes that call center operator that much more productive. So their job becomes more interesting. Their job becomes higher level, more strategic. But you need fewer people. So that's the double-edged sword. So I think that. Uh, the challenge for 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 these economies is to kind of upskill people and to make them, you know, work collaboratively with AI uh, tools. So whether so, this idea of the co-pilot or the notion of, I like to say, AI should be assisted intelligence, not artificial intelligence, because you're actually doing augment augmenting human beings. But for the people who are not able to make that transition, uh, it's going to threaten jobs. Should we fear AI replacing jobs or will it also generate new jobs in the future? The right word is that AI will displace jobs. It's, it's so it will replace, but it will also create. So it means that the jobs will be somewhere else. That's the idea of displacement, not you know replacement. So, so I think displacement is a better word to think about because that means that there are new opportunities that are created, but those are different from the the opportunities that are taken away. I think that the biggest onus uh, responsibility is on the universities and the education system to create the right uh, skill sets and the right opportunities because uh, there are two problems in emerging countries. I mean, I am I'm from India. We have this problem big time in India too. I'm sure you have it in the Philippines. And that is that uh, the what people learn at university first of all, is not aligned with what they need on the job, right? So we need better what we call market-aligned uh, learning, right? But the other thing is that even if it is aligned to what the market needs, it's outdated. So uh, so the two challenges for education are how do you align the theoretical learning that they have more closely with the jobs and secondly, how do you keep them updated so that you're aligning it with the jobs of the future, not jobs of the past. So that will happen if there is a closer collaboration between industry and the education industry, uh, education institutions facilitated by the government, right? So where we even have companies sponsoring positions uh, and picking up graduates who have been trained in order to do the jobs of tomorrow. I think it is happening between industries and individual educational institutions, but not so much between industry and the government. Uh, so, you know, for for example, I'm aware of some uh, business schools in India uh, who have created captive programs in analytics. 
basically company says i will hire your entire class you teach them analytics you teach them ai i got it so it's a partnership uh, so they're actually creating almost you know captive so that's an interesting ex example of a partnership uh, but uh, what i think that governments will take longer to get involved uh, that 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 you know you will need a new education policy uh, in the philippines uh, which which really addresses first of all it defines what are the skill sets that that will be needed what are the jobs that will be needed and then i think that they that, that a systematic audit needs to be done against well, these are the requirements of tomorrow this is the training that we are providing today what is the gap between the two and how do we bridge that gap when people think about ai they imagine terminator should they fear ai or not i think you should fear ai yes but not in the way that it was portrayed in the terminator i think you should fear ai in terms of the bias the uh, you know rogue uh, ai going rogue or for that matter if you look at language learning model like chat gpt you know the fact that they are inaccurate the fact that you cannot rely on the output the fact that you, they hallucinate you know so i think it's really kind of doing so one very important question is making sure that the ai models are producing outputs that are unbiased accurate you know truthful and useful but the other thing is i think we really need to worry about privacy we need to worry about sort of you know because there's a double edged sword again the more information i give to an algorithm about me the more personalized the recommendations can be but then i am also opening myself up for uh you know potentially uh, huge uh, exposure so i mean one of the sort of visionary ideas that i i i was talking about was that we will all create personal digital twins potentially of ourselves which will have all of our information including our likes dislikes our measurements our preferences and, and even our thoughts and feelings and emotions but now imagine that that personal digital twin gets hacked yeah. now i have not just lost my bank account or my credit card number i have lost this is true identity theft they will steal me and that's a scary thought so so making sure that we are being pretty rigorous about identity uh, management and privacy is going to be uh, that's 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 the thing that scares me Uh, way back in 2020 uh when we were all in the middle of lockdown uh you were writing about the possible effects of the pandemic on life and the economy in particular you were you were highlighting particular uh, uh trends that you felt were were positive among them you know, hybridization and instrumentation uh etc now three years later many of us have already emerged from our hibernation has anything surprised you about our new world so if you think about what we went through actually what the entire world went through and since from march 2020 onwards it was a period of trauma and traumatic change but it was also a period of tremendous forced innovation because we were all organizations individuals as learners as parents as 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 teachers as office workers uh, we had to completely change the way we do, did things and we we adapted we learned organizations learn right they learned how to do work from anywhere uh, we learned how to do hybrid uh, work when retailers learned how to do 
digital commerce and curbside pickup and so on and so forth. In education, we learned how to do live streaming, how to do hybrid uh, learning and so on. I think that, um, the so the pendulum swung from zero to 100 in terms of digital. Now that we are emerging from our hibernation, as you said, the pendulum is swimming, swinging back. And what is surprising me is how much pushback we're getting from people who don't want to go back to the old ways of working. So I, I think that globally we are arriving at a equilibrium which is 60-40, which is like, you know, you come to work three days a week and two days a week you, you work remotely. Uh, but there's a lot of resistance even to doing that. And one thing that has really surprised me is how people have taken for granted that this flexibility of work will be a birthright, will be a lifetime entitlement. Uh, just uh, a couple of days ago, uh, there was a there was a big article about uh, an insurance company. It's called Farmers Insurance. And their CEO said, you guys got to come back to the office. And thousands of employees have offered to quit. Uh, because they said, listen, I sold my house uh, and I moved to the suburbs and my old parents are living with me and uh, and I fired my nanny and I'm taking care of the kids. And uh, and he's like, you know what, I'm sorry, but you know, we, <laughs> we need you in the office. So that's one thing that, that actually surprised me. The flip side of it is what surprised me is that how we are backsliding back into the old ways of doing things and we've sort of forgotten those innovation lessons. Even in the business school that I teach at, people are like, Oh, that live streaming, that's over now. I can go back to using chalk and blackboard. And no, I'm like, no, we learned so many things during the pandemic. Let us not forget those. Let's retain the best of digital and the best of physical and bring it together to create through, you know, omni-channel experiences, whether it's learning experiences or shopping experiences or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or working experiences for that matter. Mm -hmm. So in other words, get the best from both worlds. And I'll start with the customer, not start with the gen. Okay, Professor, uh, earlier uh, you compared uh, artificial intelligence to nuclear energy. And, uh, you know, you can harness it for good, but it can also be used to blow us all up, as you, as you said in your words. How do we prevent AI from blowing ourselves up? So um, to make sure that AI is used in a responsible manner and a productive manner, it's actually a uh, shared responsibility. The responsibility is shared by, by, by several entities. First, it will be the creators of the technology, right? And these are the primarily the big tech companies, right? So this is the big seven call-out names. This is Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Meta, OpenAI, NVIDIA, Intel, IBM, you know, these are the Apple, right? And then in China, you have Baidu and, and, and Tencent and, uh, and Alibaba, right? So these companies all are putting in place already responsible AI policies and, you know, things that they will do and will not do. For example, you know, what Google says is that they will never create any AI system that can be used to create uh, military applications, right, weapons mm -hmm. or whatever. So, or they will never uh, engage in any algorithms, will not talk about any domain related to 
human rights violations, right? So those are some guardrails these tech companies are putting in. So there are responsible AI policies that all the big tech companies have. That's one domain. The second is the big employers, right? They need to put in responsible AI policies. This is reminiscent to me of when we had social media 10, 15, 20 years ago, and then anybody in any employee could tweet, right? So McDonald's, for instance, put in social media guidelines saying this is, you, know, you cannot go online and talk about competition or about pricing or, you know, uh, say something that is racist on our social media channels. So, so similarly, well, there will be irresponsible AI guidelines that companies will need to put in place, right? These are the big employers on how they should. For, for example, today, like a company like JP Morgan Chase has said, you cannot use ChatGPT at work because we are worried about data privacy. So right now they're sort of locking it down, but ultimately it will be more sort of a responsible use framework. The third set of entities that need to get involved, obviously, is regulators and the government. So they have to put in guardrails that find a balance between kind of allowing the innovation to proceed, but at the same time, putting guardrails around it. You can go on either extreme, right? You can have too much regulation and too little regulation. Unfortunately, regulation is rarely done at the right level. It starts with under-regulation, and then suddenly the pendulum swings and you'll have an over-regulation. Uh, and I think over-regulation is coming uh, soon. It's probably going to happen in Europe first. So so these are three sets of entities, you know, the big tech companies, the employers, and regulators and government that need to work together to ensure that we don't blow ourselves up. And then, by the way, I would say that as consumers, too, there's a responsibility that we have uh, of not doing stupid things, right? Not, not, not... Uh, <laughs> You know, so that that is sort of we have a personal responsibility to, uh, to for instance, you know, you could have individuals deliberately trying to bias algorithms and a political through a political point of view. We have the twenty four twenty four elections coming in the U.S. I will be very curious to see how AI will be misused by political, you know, uh, interests to skew public opinion one way or the other. Yeah, well, I'll ask you about uh, the the effect of uh, disinformation and all of this, but uh, you mentioned uh, the responsibility of uh, the big companies uh, and the industry. Uh, recently, industry leaders, um, uh, tech industry leaders got together and signed a joint statement, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, that basically says uh, AI poses a risk of extinction. So it, was, it sounded very dire and urgent. Uh, are you in that camp? Do you agree that the AI is in the camp? I think that, um, that, that what they are trying to do is exaggerating to make a point, right? So they are, they are sort of presenting an extreme point of view to shake people out of their uh, apathy. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that even the people who signed the agreement uh, actually believe in all of the, what is said there. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is not doom and gloom. I think on balance, this is still a very positive development, but uh, I think it does get people's attention when you make such extreme statements like extinct, extinction. Uh, so I'm not in that camp, but I do believe that there are legitimate questions that we need to uh, to, to ask, and, and, and perhaps it makes sense to shake people and 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 get them to pay attention because we may be we may be less aware than we need of the downsides. That's that's all. 
But you did also say that um, the the way we can protect ourselves from blowing ourselves up is if we put up these guardrails, and you know that you know guardrails don't always work. <laughs> and if they don't work, it, we could be blown up, right, by by our own design. Uh, true, but I think that uh, the, the that the the scale of the blow up can then be then you have to contain the blast radius you know, of 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 the blow. This is a this is so, so I. By the way, just like if you look at weapons, if you look at any other technology, if you look at cybersecurity, there will be bad actors. There will be violations and there will be misuse of technology. But to the extent that the larger forces are arrayed on the side of good, take cybersecurity, for instance, or ransomware, right? As long as we all know that there is a threat and as long as the big tech companies and the the government are working to prevent uh, and to 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 deal with these these problems. Then isolated acts of, I would call it AI terrorism or whatever you want to call it, can be contained, right? But it is when we are actually not paying attention at the policy level, we're not paying attention at the core technology and platform level, that the blowups can be pretty spectacular. So think of this another an analogy. Business continuity and disaster planning, right? I mean, you do you you plan, and yes, you know, natural disasters will happen, and uh, you know, you live in a country where there is uh, you've been exposed to some really terrific, uh, you know, acts of nature, uh, hurricanes and so on. But uh, the question is, what is our disaster recovery plan, and what is our continuity planning? So I'm not saying that blowups will not happen; they will happen. The the question is. Can we prepare ourselves, and do we have a, the, a disaster recovery plan in place so that uh, you know the, the the consequences can be minimized? But I don't believe in the Terminator view of the AI taking over the entire world. I think that is or driving the human race to extinction. That's probably too extreme a point of view. Well, another danger that that experts have pointed out, experts like yourself, uh, is that. Uh, AI could increase disinformation exponentially. I mean, we already have a lot of it, but uh, people are saying you know, AI could create disinformation on a completely different, much, much larger scale and thus endanger uh, democracy, uh, the flow of uh, accurate, truthful information around the world. I mean, disinformation already endangers democracy as it is uh, at this level. And uh, there are people who say you know, AI could increase this many times over. Uh, and what this, is the, this is the challenge of generative AI, because generative AI actually creates new content, right? It creates new text, it creates new images, it creates new videos. So, and it creates something very, very dangerous, and that is deep fakes. So mm. today, it is it is all impossible to tell the difference between what is real and what is fake. Whether that is, so imagine that a video surfaces of Joe Biden making homophobic comments and, you know, it's a real video that he, that it seems, seems totally real. Mm. And that is then spread by, you know, the right wing candidates as evidence that he's lying or whatever. Now, those avatars, those characters, mouthing those words can be so realistic that I don't know what's the difference between fake and real. And therefore, that misinformation now takes on a whole new level of scariness 
relative to what was done in the 2016 election by you know the analytics firm that that worked for Donald Trump. Uh, you know that that they did in terms of micro targeting of messages to specific people, but now you know you will have actually mess in messages created that that we will not. So I don't know how we deal with this. I can only think about sort of digital watermarking of human beings, so that if I see your video, it has a watermark saying this is the real so and so. I talked about this idea some time back of digital biometrics, right? So is there, is there sort of a biometrics based authentication of a video or of, 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 of speech or audio or a podcast because i mean think about it you run a podcast right so maybe in a podcast i could create a complete fake uh, in fact there is a company that does this its name is digitalhumans.com right this is basically digital humans and those digital humans uh can be programmed to be your avatar and uh and there was a very interesting recent case a couple of months ago of this influencer She's actually, you know, on OnlyFans, so she 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 has sort of an adult-themed uh, OnlyFans site. She has trained an AI algorithm on several thousand hours of her YouTube videos, and uh, now it's basically, I think her name is Carly or something. So you can interact with Carly AI, and she's basically selling time with that avatar for several dollars a minute. In the first week, she made seventy thousand dollars. You know, she said, "I can make five million dollars a month because this bot will speak like her, will act like her, will basically because it is endowed with her personality, her looks, her uh, her her feelings, her thoughts." And so, you know, where do we start? So these um, uh, uh, now, of course, there is a good use of this. I can create my virtual assistant, and my virtual assistant could go out and do my shopping and do my work for me. Potentially even attend. <laughs> so here's an interesting idea. If I have a boring meeting, I can send my avatar to attend that meeting. Nobody knows that I didn't attend. <laughs> the avatar comes back. I could simply ask it a question. Give me the executive summary of that meeting. Carol nodding her head. How many times have you been in meetings where you say, this one-hour meeting, you know, only five minutes of it was relevant or could be summarized. So I think there are some benefits, but it's going to be an interesting uh, world to watch because we'll see the side <laughs> Well, you mentioned earlier that AI will inevitably uh, result in some displacement of labor. Any thoughts on how AI will affect journalism? I mean, will we be replaced in the future or will we have a just more specialized role in this Let world? me uh, give you an analogy that might be helpful from 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, uh, the gramophone was invented, right? So we created the ability to record music. Now, before that, the only way to experience music was to go to a concert hall and listen to live performances. So now the interesting question that, um, uh, that, 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 that gets asked is, what happened to the earnings and jobs of music performers after the invention of the gramophone? Interestingly, the mean earnings went down, but the variance increased, which means some people made a lot of money and other, a lot of other people kind of like, you know, lost out because now the people whose music was really good could be recorded and scaled and a lot of people could listen to it, right? That is why Taylor Swift makes billions of dollars because of scalability. So I think, so basically what happened there was that the gap between the haves and have-nots increased. I think that's what the, what's going to happen to journalism. I say that news has no value. Point of view has value. 
perspective has value insight has value right if you want to get the this is what the new york times says right you 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 can get the news from anywhere but if you want perspective come to us if you want analysis so i think that the the journalists who are doing who are reporting on facts who are producing basic blog posts who are doing kind of very uh low level reporting i think those jobs are not needed anymore however ai will become your co-pilot in creating better journalism because it will help you to do the background research it will help you get ideas it will help you to create the first draft i i like to say one of my favorite com- comments about ai generative ai is you will never start with a blank page as a journalist you know sometimes staring at a blank page getting started is the most difficult but i can always now ask chat gpt to get me started so it is a great way to get started it is a very dangerous tool to use without insight right so one of the really interesting things in this context is that you can only ask an algorithm to help you to do a job that you know how to do better than the algorithm does because then you know the difference between good recommendations and bad recommendations so i'll give you an example you know i asked chat gpt recently uh what are the reasons why companies can run into problems as they try to become more agile give me five problems they can run into it produces five problems now i know agile i know the challenges i have personal experience with them one out of those five things is like something i hadn't thought about i'm like oh that's interesting two out of the five i agreed with and i said that's really well done two the other two i said these are actually either not that great arguments or they're actually wrong so i was able to now write my article very quickly leveraging on the two that it did did, did well the one that i hadn't thought about but then adding my own inputs to the uh, to 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 create an article and i got this process done in one fifth the time that i would have it had started with a blank page that's the that's the idea that's how journalists should work ai as a compiler I'm curious, Professor. Uh, you know, you you teach and you you evaluate and grade students. How, can you tell if a student based his work on just asking ChatGPT to you know write? Yes, there's actually now his or her paper. I, I mean, you have a tool already to figure that out. Yeah, there's a tool that Stanford created called Detect GPT, and Detect GPT, you know, on uh, actually finds out if it was done. But what I am doing actually is co-opting. ChatGPT. So I just actually the timing is excellent when you're asking me this question because I just uh, wrote my final exam uh, and I just gave my students are taking the final exam as we speak. So in my final exam, I said, um, so let's say that the problem that I'm looking at is uh, that how would I come up with a marketing plan for a eco-friendly cleaning product? Okay. I asked ChatGPT. Then what I told my students is. This is the result that ChatGPT gave. How would you improve upon this? What are the things you don't like about it? How would you have asked this question better? So I'm actually co-opting it. I'm assuming they are going to cheat, and now I'm going to say I'm teaching them how to take the input that the AI provides, output that it provides, with a grain of salt, adding their own judgment to it. So one of the tactics we are adopting as teachers is to use to help students. evaluate the output of these models as opposed to saying it is banned don't use it right because 
this is the new slide rule. This is the new calculator, scientific calculator. I'm not going to fight it. What I'm going to say is use it, but go beyond it. That's the way I'm dealing with it. You know, millions in the Philippines are employed by business processing centers and millions as well in India. And are those jobs in danger? Those jobs will evolve. Those jobs will change. And you will need, yes, you will need fewer people, but they'll be doing more uh, meaningful work. Take an example that I am uh, in a call center and I'm responding to customer complaints, right? Let's say it's an airline. So if the customer calls in and says, you know, I've got this particular problem with my missing baggage or, or my trip, then the AI will produce recommendations that, I, that will help me to resolve that call faster and with greater customer satisfaction. So it will take away, all, or for instance, if I'm calling and saying, you know, my television isn't working and my error code is 4036, the AI will say, this error code corresponds to this problem and therefore what you should tell the customer is this is the fix, right? So it will reduce the time taken to serve customers. It will increase customer satisfaction. Most importantly, it will increase job satisfaction for the people. But you will need fewer people at lower levels. So that's the double-edged sword. Okay, uh, Professor, we're winding down, but I want to ask you a personal question because, uh, you know, you're from India, you're educated there as well as the United States, but now you, you work in the U.S., you've made your name in, in, in America and you have a prominent uh, position in a university. Indian immigrants in the U.S. Um, have often been in the news for, you know, reaching a certain uh, pinnacle in this company and, you know, they, they occupy leadership positions in this uh, sector, etc. The Indian immigrant uh, population in, uh, in the United States uh, has done well in technology in particular and the economy in general. Out of proportion to your numbers, it appears. No, uh, Any theories to explain why? It's very simple. It's not the average Indian uh, person you're seeing as an immigrant in the U.S. Uh, you know, the, 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 given the hurdles of uh, uh, getting a scholarship getting uh, because a lot of people who come to for technical education to the US from India don't have the money to uh, you know to 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 pay on their own so therefore they like take me for example I somebody had to pay for my PhD and if somebody had to pay for a PhD they're not just going to give out money they need people who are good right so there's a self-selection there's a tremendous so as opposed to people who come from Mexico they all they need to do is to get across the border but coming from India I have to get on a plane I have to have financing, I have to have, you know, somebody willing to sponsor me. So you're seeing a very, very select group of people. This is the top 1%. So when those people come here, it's not, you know, the average Indian in the US is not an average Indian from India. They are at the top 1%. And therefore, you have a very, very high average performance. And the other thing, of course, is that the value placed on education and higher education and technical education in particular in the culture is much, much, much greater. So that's, I think, why the quality of the people that, that are here, it's very, it's not a representative sample. So it's sort of unfair to compare the Indian immigrants against the average uh, uh, US or, you know, or even for that matter, other countries. So, uh, and then the, the last thing I'll add to that equation is uh, the language. Why are there so many tech Indian CEOs? Because you can be smart, you can be brilliant, but you also need to be able to communicate. 
So, so this is where the Indian CEOs or Indian immigrants, technical immigrants, have an advantage over, say, immigrants from China or from 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 Japan or from other countries because of the English language, uh, which, by the way, is shared by the people from the Philippines, right? So, which is the uh, the and that is why the people from the Philippines do so well, actually better than Indians in customer service roles online on, 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 online because uh, of the accent, right? Or, or the accent. So uh, so I think that uh, those are the, so, so in, in, in summary, it's three factors. It's like basically you have a very small subset of highly skilled people who are coming here. And secondly, they are culturally and their work ethic and their the their, their emphasis on technical education and training. And third, the language uh, advantage that they have. That is why you see today, whether it's a Google or an IBM or a Microsoft or an Adobe, uh, they're all run by Indian CEOs. Okay, we're uh, we're all looking forward to your visit to the Philippines. We want to thank you, uh, Doctor. Looking yeah, forward. Thank you. To it. Uh, enjoyed this conversation and. Uh, Thanks for thanks for setting it up. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mohan Asani, for your time and for sharing your expertise and insights with our audience. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, Podmates. Download this episode so you can listen to it anytime, anywhere. Stay safe, Podmates. <laughs>